I feel like it would be a bad thing if we went live and he's talking about coon penis. Yeah. Literal yeah. coon penis? A little different. Don't say it. <laughs> Don't say it. Literal coon penis. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe. Don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. And we're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows this thursday we'll be doing another episode of our revolutionary reckoning with the good friends over at left reckoning matt and david also pascal's birthday is coming up and if you want to send him a video birthday message email me and we're going to make a birthday montage for our holiday party slash Pascal Robert birthday party show. Toussaint. Yes, sir. It's time for the merch pitch. Do you have your prepared merch pitch today? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I have one of those. You ready? I'm ready. I'm ready, Slick. Are you? So, people. Just want to let you know, if you like this show, we got merch for you. Let your coworkers know where you stand with a This Is Revolution mug. And a t-shirt where they won't know half the people on it. For Pascal's, <laughs> for Pascal's in the middle smiling. And that is what's up. See? You can get it. You can get the mug and the mouse pad. Your coworkers won't have any idea what's going on. They'll just think they should hate it, but they'll be wrong. You just gotta slowly slide in on a low volume, a little bit of the pod. Tell them. Uh, um, Here I we have a, what's up? I think that was excellent. Pink little pessimism shirt, perfect for your Tim's. Rocket, Cop 1, Cop 2, very New York. We got a New Yorker on today, so. I feel like Sean KB has Tim's on right now. (laughs) (laughs) Straight from the work site. It would be Jesus's. No, 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 no. Those are his work site Tim's. Mm -hmm. And then he's got his in the house lounging Tim's. Right. And Not to be confused out. with the dressy ones. Exactly. He's going got out, Tim. Yeah. I only think of Tim's on two <laughs> occasions. That's right. <laughs> Thank you to all the patrons and YouTube and Twitch subscribers. 
You guys are the important cogs in the TIR machine. If you'd like to be part of what we do here, have access to the call-in segment of the show. That is always so much fun. There's only one way. Become a patron. You get access to the exclusive champagne room. And you can join us for movie night, which movie night coming up is going to be a double feature because I failed. Um, movie night has to be a double feature and we have to get uh, both Willie Dynamite and Life is Hot in Cracktown. What do you say, Tucson? Here for it. Are you going to join us for movie night it, when we do movie night? I think so. Are you up for the double feature? Should we start it earlier? Or what, what should we do? I don't know, man. I got to I gotta buy snacks. That's my primary concern. That's how I. Uh, that's how you know I'm excited about something. If there's popcorn. Yeah. Are you a popcorn person? Um, I am a popcorn person every couple of months because I realize how bad it is for your gums, and then I don't eat it for months, and then I'm like, oh my god, this wonderful thing. Why haven't I been eating this? And the cycle starts again. And the, the deadly cycle. Deadly. Well, before we bring everybody in, let's get the audience ready for what we're going to talk about. I know the show topic might have been a little confusing or even cryptic to some. What is the laptop class? Well, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter has been quite the ride, with many predicting the doom of the platform. The mercurial billionaire has certainly done much to eliminate the liberal Twitterati and spook advertisers. However, his takeover has also alienated many Twitter employees. Specifically, Musk's demands that Twitter's workers return to the office have been met with mass resignations. For some, this is a righteous protest from workers refusing to bend to management unilaterally changing working conditions. However, in a recent article for Newsweek, Charles Stallworth proclaimed the protest as nothing more than a tantrum from the pampered laptop class liberals. How should we understand the conflict at Twitter? Is Stallworth a is Stallworth a Union Railway worker correct? And what is the laptop class? I don't have the answers to these questions as my good friend and fellow uh, podcaster Justin Hunt always says. But I have some friends that could help shed some light on the situation. First and foremost, let me bring in the soon-to-be birthday boy himself, my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. I didn't know we were doing all of this wonderful Fandango for my birthday this year. Yeah. You know, as the show gets bigger, we need to acknowledge these special days of the people that make the show what it is. Of course, you as my co-host, as my other appendage <laughs> in this thing that we do called TIR, we of course have to celebrate your birthday. I am honored. That's what's up. So uh, I was thinking, what if people put together like a cool little montage? Maybe we'll get a montage of some people that have come on the show and we can play the happy birthday Pascal montage. Stevie Wonder version? Mm -hmm. <laughs> can you imagine all these white people singing happy birthday? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. They know the Stevie Wonder version now. That's even better. Yeah. That's even that would oh if you're real, that's what would happen. That is exactly what would happen. Speaking of long hair, Jesus's coming all the way live from his teaching office at Missouri State University. He is everyone's favorite history professor. Me, Jean Bajlan. Greetings. It's good to see you all. I hope everyone is doing well and having a wonderful whatever day of the week it is. I don't even know because, well, no, maybe I know. Wait, is it Tuesday? It's Tuesday. Yeah. When you have kids, it's all just one day 
with three hour breaks of sleep. So every day is definitely Monday when you have children. Every day but is a Monday, but every day is a Friday in your heart. That's not true. It's only Friday when those little motherfuckers go to sleep. Speaking of kids. <laughs> what? Speaking of kids. She is the headless, faceless voice of reason on this show. She's like a sister to me. M. Tucson. Hello, hello, everyone. I would just like to take this opportunity to say Tuesday, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I don't get to say it enough. <laughs> That's all. Tuesday, isn't it? Is that, is that a, it's Tuesday. Tuesday. Chew Wednesday. Tuesday. No. Someone We're not going to say what the doctor was. Tucson, you see this? Jim says uh, the only good part about kids is when they get a few years old and you can use them as slave labor. You people are so mean. <laughs> you people are so mean. I've been training Zal to clean things. It's a game we play called Clean Up the Mess. It's not working that well. Because you have to do the cleanup song. And like ever since Phoenix was little, we do the cleanup song. Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. Clean that up. That has diminishing returns. Has but you diminishing. have to clean it up with them. You can't just tell them to do it. You have to do it with them. Of course you, you do it with them. But then why the hell don't I just do it? Because I'll do it better. Well, of course. Oh. But you want him to learn how to clean up, just like you want him to clean up everything, right? You don't want to wipe them behind forever. He's like four years old. Those turds are real. They are real. They're a real deal. Whenever he, when he first started going to the bathroom, he mm. basically used to call me and then do like the police stand up against the wall, <laughs> and he'd be like, "Okay, time for you to do your, do your bit." I was like, "Okay." And then Sarah was like, what the heck is going on with Zah? Why, why, why is he preparing for a pat down? Oh my gosh. Can you imagine what the school said when that happened? The school was probably like, oh my God, what is happening to There's this There's a book somewhere in it called The Adventures of Zal, written to be, waiting to be written. Absolutely. Yeah, he's uh, he's an instigator. Apparently, he's been leading insurrections at nap time at school, like inciting the other children to not nap and instead run around and terrify the teachers, the poor ladies. I don't know. But, you know, it is what it is. Well, speaking of a guy that pulls out way early, he is our good friend in New York. <laughs> Wow, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. He is the host of the Antifada podcast. He is, he is, he is the working class. He is, literally. He's like, I can't do these shows sometimes because, bitch, I got work. Sean KB. Hello, hello, hello. You guys are so fortunate uh, with this 9 p.m. till 11 p.m. stream that I am blessedly laid off right now. So oh, I got all the shit. time in the world. Is that like oh, an okay wow. thing? Like you got rest now or is it like? Yeah, I get to rest now. I, uh, I was building a hospital and then they didn't need me anymore. So they laid me off. And so uh, basically I'm here to stream. I'm here to podcast. I'm taking time off to be with you guys and do my thing. And uh, hyped to talk about laptop class today. So, this is interesting. I know you were talking to Gene Bajlan, was a guest on your show uh, recently. And he sent us the article that you, you recommended about the uh, this idea of a laptop class. Hmm. And we were talking about it on our TIR pre-show production call. That's the that's the adult way of saying what it is. Um, what is the laptop class? And because the article felt a little right wingy, I mean, it definitely was a Newsweek article. 
Newsweek is now all of a sudden a right wing publication. What are they owned by the Moonies now or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Unitarian Church. Or Unitarian like Church, like it's gone the way of the Washington Times. That they they bought like the shell of Newsweek, which was like a reputable like centrist publication when I was a kid, and now it's some some psycho shit, I guess. Some Trumpist shit. Um, I think it's like uh, it's it's a uh, it's very much in the anti woke train. I think that's the common denominator of Newsweek these days. So they do publish people on the left uh, or people below me. <laughs> but it's de- it, it definitely kind of, I think, Newsweek in general is going for that anti-working, you know, anti-woke, anti-liberal elite uh, kind of politics uh, that is... I don't think it's becoming like a mass politics, but it's certainly catching fire amongst some intellectual circles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I see. I'm not sure I see it as a mass politics if we're talking about what this uh, ephemeral laptop class is. I was trying to to think through it in my mind because we here all as good Marxists have a certain criteria, certain criterion with which we try to understand class. And of course, that's famously about relation to the means of production. Mm -hmm. But what the laptop class seems to mean for these people is um, one of the poles within a larger culture war. Uh, I think that's the political bent to it. Getting a little deeper than that, I think um, there is a, a true sociological split that exists certainly within the social division of labor across society uh, with people who work with their hands like myself and then people who work in offices doing clerical work or any number of different tasks within that. So if we take that for granted within what they would call the laptop class, which is people that work in offices, I think especially. Um, But then of course people too, because this uh, article that this gentleman, that this union brother wrote is complaining about people who got to sit at home during the pandemic while the rest of us, you know, did the shit that I did, which is take like almost completely barren, frightening public transportation for an hour and 45 minutes to mm-hmm. build foundations, you know, on the other side of the city, um, commuting through basically um, a post-apocalyptic hellscape in order to get to work and hopefully not get sick and die. Uh, they're using, uh, the, the people who would use laptop class are using it in this sort of um, sociological sense of class as like habitus, but also of course to trying to make a distinction between people who work with their hands and people who work in offices. I think that falls flat on its face for people like us when we're trying to think about class. Um, and I think that what the real stumbling block here is, because he's talking specifically about Twitter, is that um, Within this lap, this liberal laptop class that he's gleefully pointing out is um, bitching and moaning and complaining, not just about Twitter's new um, administration, but also the people within it are complaining because I don't know, they're getting laid off um, within the people who are getting laid off. And even within the people who are allied with those folks, there's different strata, there's different strata to this laptop class. So while we might feel solidarity towards a worker like an engineer, you know, who's actually producing uh, on his laptop, who's actually building something, um, it's harder, of course, to find sympathy for people in the HR or advertising department who are getting laid off from Twitter. Because, <laughs> of course, their social role is, is completely different from the engineer. So I think that the laptop class concept is confuses more than it actually elucidates if we're trying to look at it in terms of actual class dynamics class relationships um you know as communists or socialists or anarchists or whatever but it, it only really makes sense if you are taking it from this not just culture war position of like liberal woke blue-haired um laptop users who work from home in their pajamas on the one hand and the hard-working blue-collar union men especially on the other side when really at the end of the day and then i'm gonna be done with this little 
monologue right here. At the end of the day, it breaks down to Democrats and Republicans. But that's really what this Charles, what Brother Charles, let's call him Brother Charles, wants us <laughs> to do, is he wants us oh, to align oh, with he's Republicans. In he's in the nation. He's in the nation. <laughs> I wish the fucking railroad workers were as powerful as the nation of Islam. Man. They would stand there in little fucking bow ties and be able to imagine, intimidate the hell out of their enemies. Can you imagine the strike and they just look at Joe Biden and <laughs> well, Sean, you made, a, you, you made a really uh, effective analysis of what this article seems like it's trying to do, because one of the things that's been a long-time ploy of the reactionary right is try to take the concept of class that is so endemic to a kind of left or Marxist analysis in terms of class warfare, in terms of unifying the working class against the ruling class, the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie, and invert that. And when I think of the person who did that the best is someone like Nixon with the hard hat rebellions in mm -hmm. which he, he actually got the working class to view the left flank of capital as the enemies of those patriotic working class people yep. who go to work every day and those hippies who are there to destroy you and those black radicals who are trying to destroy the fabric of America. And what's fascinating about that kind of cultural war rhetoric that starts at that period is that it resonates very much for me in terms of how it's being played out today in that with the Trumpist right, they're trying to reframe this kind of notion of what it means to be working class. And I see this a lot in certain online discourse to be someone who is loyal to American ideals and values and things of that nature without acknowledging that working class people are people who are exploited for their labor by capital in order to deny them the justice that they deserve in terms of health care, working class salaries, in terms of quality of life housing, in terms of education and things of that nature. So how do we flip this on its head and expose the way in which the right is trying to take class analysis and reduce it to a culture war charade so they can score points with the capitalists that support them while we unfortunately are dealing with a left flank with the liberal the liberals, i.e. the Democratic Party, that's not really exactly interested in shoring up the bona fides of the working class either. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in, in what you said and the question of what to do about it. I mean, maybe we can sort of develop this collectively as time goes on through the course of this episode. But uh, yeah, I think it's been very, very effective. And I think you pointing to Nixon um, is, is really opposite because what we've been in for the last, I don't know, five, six to 20 or 30 years it's not just a new, uh, like a, a new form of backlash, a backlash politics that's been growing steam and really moved forward with, uh, with the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, but also, um, at the same time, something that bizarrely looks like a new red scare, but without any of the reds, you know, like we've mm -hmm. got all the fucking hysteria, all of the um, authoritarianism of a red scare but the people that they're going after are um, ultimately left liberal democrat types who are as we all know not communists at all and in fact are anti-communists by and large do, do certainly you, in their practice if not their ideology but, but sean let me ask you this i actually i'll ask you and, and gene and pascal this do you think it's because they literally don't fear quote unquote communist socialists or, or leftists and the only people that really make any sort of stink and that actually um, donate to political parties and, and actually are politically active on a mass scale um, are these liberal Democrats. What, what say you, Gene? I mean, I, I mean, I certainly think, you know, this red scare rhetoric uh, is used by the right to accuse social social liberals of doing all kinds of nefarious things and subverting them, you know, subverting, you know, subverting American culture from within. But of course, we see it also from liberals. You have someone like Hakeem Jeffries, for example, who is positioning himself as a progressive, but an enemy of uh, the socialist left, of, of the tankies, of the Putin apologists. So, you know, we have uh, both flanks of American politics utilize 
anti-socialism as a kind of organizing principle, but in different ways. I mean, you look at the liberal uh, discourse and the way that anti-fascism has become a unifying thread for both domestic mm. democratic party politics and liberal foreign policy. You have this elision of, uh, you know, for example, Putin, which is uh, and Putin's Russia, which is a right-wing capitalist state, but it's it's a communist state. You know, it's 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 mixed up with the whole Soviet Union. And then when we turn to this whole issue about uh, the laptop class, just to be off at a tangent, because there's something I wanted to come back to. Uh, it really makes me think of something Pascal talks about. The way that this discourse is framed is that you have kind of this woke cultural politics on one side, and then you have this new Republican working class politics, and it's the Republicans who are now the working class party, and it's the Democrats who are, are, are like, you know, the identity politics period people. But really, as Pascal often points out, the reality is the opposite. The whole woke stuff is a class politics for a particular class of, of people to obfuscate their class interests mm. in a kind of holistic uh, speaking for the entire community or black people or uh, um, uh, Hispanic people or gay people, all these identity groups, but really they're using this discourse uh, in a, uh, to obfuscate that particular class politics, which Pascal talks about as being extracting the fat back and biscuits from uh, the establishment. Conversely, the Republicans and this new quote unquote populist right, they use class, as Sean pointed out, not in an economic sense, but in a sociological sense in some ways, but also in a purely cultural sense. It, 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 and the example I would give is you can come to a place like Springfield and you can meet some guy who has a plaid shirt, who has a pickup truck, who has some wood in the back of his car, but he earns $200,000 a year because he owns his own pool installation company. Right. He works with his hands, but he is by a class, you know, by an objective class measure, a member of the bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie. Conversely, you can have, I mean, you can have a uh, administrative assistant at a university being paid something like, you know, $25,000, $30,000 a year, who is, uh, you know, who works uh, nine to five. They're not working with their hands, but whether if they're an administrative assistant in a company or if they're an administrative system in a state institution, you know, they can be regarded as working class or working class adjacent. So the entire quote unquote working class discourse coming from the Republican right is a form of identity politics mm -hmm. designed precisely, as Sean uh, points out, to wedge a cultural divide in between uh, groups of people whose who may be quite culturally different from each other, no doubt, but whose material interests often align very well. Yeah, there's there's two things I would say to that. Um, the first is that we should familiarize ourselves with a uh, historical term, an analytical term called um, producerism. Mm -hmm. Producerism having a very long history in Europe and the United States. Uh, producerism basically being... Um, a type of politics um, where you understand um, the working class, people who work, uh, small business people, mm -hmm. and especially manufacturing, industrial or extractive capitalists as those who produce in society and are natural allies against, um, you know, their their class enemies, I suppose, uh, who are the um, finance, you know, who are the bankers who are the um, do-nothing white-collar workers, who are uh, those on welfare, you know, the scroungers and the homeless and the indigent and the, the lumpen bourgeoisie. <clears throat> what uh, producerist politics tries to do is unite um, classes with very different material self-interest, which is to say elements of the bourgeoisie, uh, the petty bourgeoisie, and uh, elements of the working class together into an incoherent but often powerful type of politics uh, which basically seeks to pull a coalition together in order to fight for things like tariffs in order to fight for things like different industrial policies different tax type policies so what we're seeing arising 
is a classic type of uh, producerist politics, which on its face uh, seems plausibly populist. You know what I mean? Standing up for the working man, standing up for the hard factory owner, you know, who's trying <laughs> to keep the, the plant in town despite those cheap Chinese, you know, laborers over there who he can't compete with. Uh, so it's populist. It is populist in a sense, but it certainly isn't uh, the type of class politics that we ourselves would share. And it's certainly something that tries to to suck a lot of the air out of the room um, of what we're trying to do. Um, what was the other point that I wanted to make? Um, I forgot it for now. So somebody else can answer. <laughs> I'm sure you had something to add to that about no that producer but producerist analysis is very very important because it kind of reduces the capacity for camaraderie amongst the working class onto functionality as opposed to who was actually oppressed by the working class by by the ruling class and the bourgeoisie so I can kind of see how it becomes an obstacle to solidarity in that regard but what what I find fascinating is that how effective the reactionary right is at this politics of obscuring class to actually shore up support about them and how they use fear of social phenomenon that they adhere to liberals as a means to say, look, they're coming to get you. They're coming for your kids. And one of the things that I think about when that is this happening right now with this groomer thing yeah. is how it's a very, very effective way of painting Everything left of Trump as some kind of insidious, morally bankrupt, you know, child grooming, you know, sexually perverted uh, lifestyle that's trying to destroy the values of America while not acknowledging that the reactionary right is not going to do a damn thing to even address the, the material conditions of the people that they're claiming have the same kind of moral values in, in light of. Why is the left so inept? And countering this kind of discourse, and always ends up falling flat on its face when it's projected by the reactionary right. Jason, I'd like to hear your thoughts on why do you think that is? Well, first of all, there's not, in my opinion, a unified left thought on on that kind of ideology. Um, and it, and the loud, I think the loudest talkers in that are, are liberals, right? You know, they have kids that are affected by you know what bathroom you're going to use. Um, so they're, they're a little more vocal in my opinion, uh, when it comes to that, I mean, you saw it in the, in the voting in this, uh, primary election, especially when it came to things like abortion, where the reactionary right maybe went a little too far. Um, and we, we have been talking about this for how long have we been talking about the whole abortion thing? Yeah. I mean, just Since to last- jump in. Since last year, but I just wanted to jump in. It's it's like, have the reactionary right really been that effective, right? We saw in this midterms where all economic and political indicators and and historical indicators should have delivered us a complete Republican takeover. But I think, you know, I think voters are a little bit more savvy than people give them credit for. And I think a lot of these cultural appeals... I think there's two points. I think a lot of people were um, the abortion thing, I think, motivated people. I think the fact that, you know, however pitiful it is, something like uh, uh, the debt forgiveness, how, you know, how pitiful and limited it was, that helped because people realized, well, you know, the Republicans are saying all this stuff, but they don't have a program. It's just complaining. And people kind of, I think a lot of people, uh, saw through it, or at least enough people didn't get taken in by it, and the Republican gains were far less than we might have expected. So there is a limit to this culture war. And you know, one thing they say down here in uh, in Springfield is everybody is against abortion until they nut in their cousin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's I, mean, just I didn't think I'd hear the term, the phrase "nut in your cousin" on this episode, but thank you. Tucson, <laughs> what's a nice do, ring to it? Nut in your cousin. Tucson, I want to give your opinion. You, you've been relatively quiet. What, what is your take on all this? Um, I, I can see the laptop class coming into 
a formation enough to get a name like the laptop class during COVID, for sure. Mm. Um, there was a, a huge divide. Uh, I was very aware of it because at a certain point, articles in newspapers weren't even written towards people who weren't of that class. Don't you hate it when your Uber Eats is late? But let's let's point out here the whole laptop class thing and working from home was not Mm -hmm. the kind of panacea that everybody thought, you know, that I mean, there were some people who obviously benefited from working from home, but working from home also served a number of like different uh, purposes. People worked longer because there there was no clear division between home life and work life. Childcare Mm -hmm. was dumped on. Uh, uh, people because the schools were closed. So, you know, it's people like, oh, working at home is like so amazing. But uh, in certain respects, it led to a further takeover of people's private time and private life and private space as work conquered your refuge. It was a win. It was a win for capital working from home because especially people that are parents like my son's mom. It was a huge win because now you can take your kid to school. You can pick your kid up when you need to, um, which was a huge hassle before when you have to commute in an area like the Bay Area. I can't speak for New York and, and how you on, but you know, uh, over the last 10 years, traffic in the Bay Area is unfathomable. And, you know, she worked in an industry um, that was about an hour hour and a half uh, mm-hmm. with little traffic from the house and you add commuter traffic. Now you're, you know, two, three hours both ways, you know, God forbid you have to pick up a child, which is not looked upon positively in, uh, in the modern work environment. Uh, so working from home definitely lets you not have to commute, but you know, there's been several articles in places like Business Insider, which actually isn't, isn't a bad place to read about stuff like this. A lot of employers are like, now we can pay you less. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to come into the office. So and you want the freedom to work from home and we're going to set you up at your house with everything you can imagine from a top flight desk to, you know, monitors and everything you could possibly need. And you're never going to leave. And Gene is right. I remember those, you know, oh, I have a call with, you know, these doctors in Australia. So I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and be on this call. Um, so I think that's a part of this thing that 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 person missed or just didn't care about. Because, I, again, I think you're right. It's about the idea of uh, this exalted class of fancy liberals in the uh, and the Archie Bunker type. Mm-hmm. But then what about the commercial real estate? That's supposed to be the other shoe that, that drops. That's the thing that, that oh. sends the workers back because there's all a, offices are empty. There's okay. a lot of shoes ready to drop. I mean, commercial yeah. real estate, as you point out, is one of those big ones. But somehow, like all the other shoes, they're just up in space now, not, floating like they're not like a like roadrunner. You know? Here's my take. Sorry, Sean. Not yeah, a lot no, of people want to work from home. So my son's mom isn't an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination, but she works in a field where maybe she's on the older end now. And here, stop talking about shade. This woman, you know, this woman, I know. Um, and, and, you know, there are people that actually like the work environment because it is, fun in an, in a certain what context because that's that's what's fun to those people well, well it atomizes well, okay. working well, from home atomizes people yeah we live in 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 this advanced bourgeois society that we live in think about <clears throat> your day-to-day interactions 
um, and how, how you know people, how you interact with people, how you form relationships. I mean, by and large, you do that either through work or you meet people and socialize that way. You do that while you're shopping. You know, the guy at the bodega on the corner. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Uh, or, you know, people through like your various consumption habits, like the kind of bar you go to or the club you go to or whatever. All of us are implicated in these like deep webs uh, and work serves not just a function to extract value from all of us and make profits for the bosses and that's its primary function secondary to that of course it makes good goods but third to that it forms like the real basis out of which so much of our social lives arise and so i feel like the the attempt to create a sort of culture war which is two-sided by the way right because on the one hand you've got the blue-haired woke pajama pants wearing work from home people <laughs> slash Starbucks people on the other side of the uh, uh, fence. You've got the, the, um, uh, the toothless um, American flag wearing chud racist deplorables. Right. And so these are the two sort of visions that or these, these two competing cultural norms, uh, which are fighting themselves out right now and i feel like for for those of us who are trying to have a more substantive or or imminent critique of all this as we should be having we're kind of left wondering what what kind of politics can arise out of this that isn't simply democrat versus republican which is to say certain fractions of capital against other fractions of capital with the particular working classes and other stakeholders within those you know, fractions of industry fighting one another over control of these two political parties, which ultimately, of course, as we know, uh, serve the same goal, which is to make sure that we're all working, that we're all out there, whether it's me swinging the hammer, whether it's me using the oxyacetylene torch, or whether it's those laptop users who are making code or they're doing Excel spreadsheets or whatever it is emails. that a laptop class yeah, sends emails, you know? Um, Whatever it is, it all serves ultimately, um, you know, the interests of somebody else besides us. Uh, the only way that we're going to have a, a, a politics outside of that is if we have a true class politics that isn't some weird warmed over populism of the right, like some producerism or some left uh, populism type shit, uh, which tries to simply take the divides within the working class, paper them over and say that we're all the same. Because that takes it too far, right? So that's why we have to to acknowledge that there is a sociological truth to the laptop class versus the blue collar worker, because they do work in, in very different environments. They do have very, very different conditions. They have very, very different wage packages. If you look at the amount of profits and what you're able to get paid in as like a tech worker versus what you're able to be paid as like a non-union construction worker or something like that. So these distinctions are very, very important. And if there is a politics, you know, where, where we can have some effect, where we can start building something, it's not the politics of chuds versus wokes or the politics of uh, Biden versus DeSantis or whatever. It's mm. trying to craft a way that we can actually do small p politics to unite the laptop class, or at least those who are workers within the laptop class, uh, along with uh, the people who swing the hammers. You but know, how, to try to, yeah. How hard is that? And, and I'll ask hard. this question to you guys, and then I'll, I'll take my answer <laughs> off there. Um, there's a, I don't know if you guys watch The Office, and you know, I'm old and I like watching The Office. I've watched it 25 times in its entirety. And there's a YouTube page they have of outtakes. And there was an outtake where the Jim character pulled a stunt on Dwight to make him think he was stuck in the Matrix. And he had, they have the black security guard play Morpheus. And when he gives him the two pills, which one to take, Dwight takes the pill to stay in the Matrix, which messes up their whole skit. And they're like, why? And he goes, I got I got a job as manager now. <laughs> I'm about to marry this really hot woman. My life is great. I don't want I don't want to know the truth. He literally says in this thing that I'm so mad it, it never made it. He goes, I don't want to know the truth. I say that to ask this question. What happens? And you mentioned Starbucks. That's a that's a temporary job for a lot of people. Not everybody, but for a lot of people. I actually know and worked with people that retired from Starbucks. Um, 
what happens when those people get sucked up into the quote unquote lab of class and they get given that free laptop they actually get an office with the door no longer a cubicle maybe they get some sort of middle management promotion um how do you get that person to understand the plight of the working class when they now have bourgeois middle class comforts i'll take my answer off there uh if if that if i can answer that question it's you have to there's always going to be intermediate classes, you know, the the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, of course, are these two poles around which the politics of society operates. We all know how uh, poorly that first pole of the proletariat is doing right now. But what the idea is, is to create a strong enough uh, movement uh, and enough power uh, and enough real possibility that you can start pulling even relatively retrogressive elements like the petty bourgeoisie and certainly elements that are tasked with social control like middle managers or HR departments or whatever to try to um, pull those people towards that pole, but they cannot dominate the pole, right? Mm -hmm. This is the thing. This is what every, people have been trying to do in America for like, I don't know, 70 80 years people on the left <laughs> is they've been trying to like find a piece in the center they've been trying to like grab onto whatever sort of populist left movements exist you know within the cursed democratic party uh and try to make some influence within there in my mind and i think history shows this you have to create an attractive pole that can turn that can pull elements of society towards you <laughs> trying to do it the opposite way just leads to this situation that everybody is in right now, even myself as somebody who says, don't vote, fuck the Democrats. I hope they all redact themselves. We're all left sitting, you know, like outside looking in at power. And it's I mean, all we, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, that's what it comes down to. That's the kind of conundrum for the left at, at this particular moment is that you have a choice of irrelevance within the Democratic Party or irrelevance outside of the Democratic Party or becoming so anti-liberal, you basically end up defecting to the Republican Party. So, I mean, you know, it's a big structural problem. I think, you know, there is no independent politics. And you see, you know, if we look at American politics, liberalism is hegemonic and you have a progressive liberalism which dominates certain sections of the country and certain peak institutions, including the apparatus of the state, including certain elements of corporate culture. And then you have uh, a quote unquote official opposition of uh, um, in the form of this kind of conservative liberalism, which uh, harkens back to a kind of uh, uh, older days and, you know, when men were men and people knew their roles. But at, this, at the end of the day, it's just two iterations of liberal uh, politics. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this, you know, I often talk about this uh, to people. People go, oh, well, you know, they don't tolerate conservatives in academia, but they tolerate Marxists. Well, the reason is, is because the conservatives are the official opposition. Academia is dominated by the Democratic Party. And Marxists are just, uh, and socialists are just curiosos mm -hmm. that can be looked down on and be like, oh, well, you know, it's a bit eccentric to be a socialist, but they don't represent any particular threat to anybody. And when even there is a sniff of a left, suddenly the knives come out for the Bernie Sanders people, uh, for the academics who are like the pro-Bernie Sanders people because you didn't sign on to Elizabeth Warren. But the reason it is like that is because in a in an institution like the uh, academia dominated by democrats the left is just a, a complete irrelevant you might as well be like you know i don't know uh, uh, an anarcho primitivist hmm. you know it's like it's completely irrelevant to who they see as their primary competitors for cultural and political control so we have this kind of uh, dynamic and when we look at left politics in general we end up really if we're honest about it and uh, you know i'm guilty of this too getting just dragged in to the same paradigms of liberal politics where you have the left and the post left and you know people are either like fascist apology apologists or people are either you know nato pro-imperialist but really all this is is just a uh, a kind of 
hammer and sickle version of the culture wars that the dominant ideology of liberalism is fighting within itself because we don't have an independent politics so we pick up on the same cultural war uh, uh, discourse that dominates American culture and it's extremely hard to get out of it because it's what people are talking about I think yes, part no. of the problem is that, frankly, you know, not to, to, to ring a bell that I've run many times, is that there is no organized left in the United States. We've said that often, but we have leftists as opposed to the left. What I mean, and what, what, what do we mean by a left? A political organization or cadre of individuals who have the capacity to influence politics to bring about material change to a quality of life that improves the life of poor and working people in this country. And we haven't had a left like that, really, I would argue, since the 30s and 40s. And this is one of the main reasons why I'm not a fan of the new left of the 60s as much as many people are as well. But the question becomes, to answer the question that Jason presented, how do we change that? I think part of the reason that we're not changing that is that we're aiming ourselves at the wrong target. Why exactly are we so interested in targeting petite bourgeois people who are stuck in the professional class that is the beneficiary of a system that they're likely not willing to want to, to change or rebel against when we have so many members of society who are working class folk who are suffering from the system who are not being talked to that none of us are reaching out to trying to organize. And I think that part of the problem that we have is that we are a left that is made up of downwardly mobile professional petit bourgeois people ourselves and who are not effectively dedicated to organizing working class people because frankly many of us don't know how to deal with working class people and some of us frankly Ooh. don't like them and have a snobbish Ooh. look against them that precludes us from being able to deal with them Ooh, say it with your chest colored man real talk i want to ask you sean yeah um, what Pascal is saying with, with some fiery rhetoric that I agree with 100%. Um, as people get kind of overly excited about uh, Starbucks unions and don't really understand how collective bargaining works. Um, what about things like, you know, McDonald's and fast food workers? Mm. We're still looking at a $7.25 uh, federal minimum wage. And my mother was organizing with uh, Walmart workers, which you don't hear about anymore, um, even though it's still happening, you know, she's still part of part of the the organizing last I talked to her um, about trying to get uh, a livable wage. And when we talk about the majority of the working class, you're either in gig work, which, you know, laws are being passed to prevent unions. That's right. So even before we had Proposition 22 in California, uh, Bill AB5 prevented unions that was the give to get it to to pass with with the uh, these gig companies uber lyft and the food service people um so to pascal's point about organizing a working class between gig work which has a vast majority of people and you also have fast food work and and you know all kinds of restaurant work which varies you know, there's still some people making federal re what restaurant minimum wages with like two dollars and thirty cents, yeah, something like that. Um, so why aren't we talking with these people when we talk about organizing the working class? Is is some of it a little bit of uh, uppity hubris? <laughs> well, I come from the uh, the blue collar working class from the, um, I think it's the statistic is the 13% of workers in this country who are in manufacturing or industry or logistics, stuff that we would consider uh, blue collar. And, um, you know, it's it's easy to, and I think there's, there's some sense to focusing on us, uh, on that faction uh, of the ruling class. I'm sorry, of the working class, because uh, we make physical goods, um, because we exist in these sort of choke points, these pressure points uh, of capitalist production and the circulation of commodities mm -hmm. that we can actually press down. When we pull levers, we can make society shake in ways that other people can't. Um, I think there's a huge divide, you know, between um, that 13% and the vast majority of the rest of the class, which, as you said, 
has ended up in in the service sector or ended up in sort of lower tiers of the um of the laptop class as it were mm-hmm. i'm not sure there's any easy solutions to that i i feel like at the end of the day you've seen i've watched we've all seen for the last what 10 when did fight for 15 start oh god my mom was 10 years ago like 10 years ago plus 10, 10 years, years ago. plus yeah, yeah. It was a it was a campaign started by uh, what we call grassroots activists, so you know workers, and also uh, the some of the um, the uh, service sector unions like the SEIU. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came together, and while they never made a breakthrough themselves uh, in terms of unionizing these very hard to unionize franchises, which are balkanized and broken up. Uh, but also, as you said earlier about Starbucks, these are sort of oftentimes, except for lower stratums of the working class, lower strata, like a, 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 a job position like a, you pass a, through a on your way towards way. something else. Um, something else. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Like a... Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah you're right. Can you, can you hear us now? Hello? Oh. I can hear I can you. hear you. All right, you broke up a little bit. That might that might be my connection. Hopefully, it it's okay. But um, yeah, no, these are very difficult questions. But the point that I wanted to make is, um, until it's you've got these different different nodes, you know, of like incipient incipient uh, class power that exist, and the service workers have been pulling on the various threads. Fight for fifteen didn't create a mass union movement, but what it did do is put political pressure on capital and their and their politicians in order to push $15 minimum wages all over the uh, country, which has been very, very positive. Uh, in like that 13%, the blue collar, the, the trades or whatever, um, we also have our own issues, which Brother Charles uh, wants to turn <laughs> as a way he wants to use the this um, our existence, the fact that we have that we don't work in our pajamas, that we go out with our tools and we swing hammers all day. That you know, sometimes I get up at 4:30 in the morning in order to get to work. Sometimes I have a two-hour commute. Um, you know, sometimes I come home from work feeling like holy hell, like I can barely even fucking stand up. The work is so hard. Brother Charles and company want to take that and turn that as into a bludgeon with which to attack other members of the class. And what I'm saying is that we need to resist that while at the same time understanding like the, the sociological and the class compositional differences that exist between parts of the class. And it's when workers are ultimately self-organizing in their own interest, whether it's in service with a fight for 15 or whether it's, I mean, we're talking brother Charles put us down this fucking track. Brother Charles, there is literally, <laughs> literally a fucking strike deadline of mm-hmm. December 9th for your, you know, your unions to mm-hmm. fucking go out on strike against the big four railroad capitalists who have taken $200 billion in dividends while eliminating 370,000 jobs from the industry Jesus in the Christ. last fucking 10 years, 12 years. And this is what you want to be talking about, brother Charles? Are you fucking serious, dude? But, this but, is where this politics takes us. It takes five of us, right? All of us with good heads on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. And it puts us into a position of like, well, you know, culture war this and culture war that. When this, you know, these motherfuckers want us to be talking about that shit, as exactly. opposed to going up against the yellow dog scab Brandon administration, which is shoving a slave labor contract down the railroad workers' throats. Even you, brother Charles. Ooh, say it with your chest. I mean, I think, and I think also, you know, part of the context for this is the transformation of the nature of work in the era of neoliberalism and also the re you know the recuperation of uh, um, civil rights and uh, the feminist movement in the 60s which diversified the working uh, uh, the working class brought new people into the labor force brought new opportunities uh, um, you know a more diverse uh, you know working class and you know, as this happens, you have basically the shipping off of so much uh, heavy industry to East Asia, and so we end up with this um, 
industrial working class, which is actually quite small. And then you have this vast like population of people who are doing all kinds of service uh, sector jobs and they're harder to organize. They don't build the same. I mean, if you're down a coal mine, potentially dying with your friend, uh, you know, like literally, in, I think in the First World War, uh, Welsh miners tried to get enlisted into the military because it was safer to serve <laughs> in the military than to oh, down, yeah. down a Welsh mine. But that kind of huge labor doesn't exist to the same degree in the West as it once did. That's been, you know, offshore. They're just blowing so, the caps off the, the hills. So, yeah. And, and, you know, there's so much mechanization has taken place. New technology has been applied. Um, so you basically end up with a, uh, a working class that is disproportionately in service sectors that is fragmented and that is you know that we see this the difference between the blue collar and the white collar worker as you know analogous to the way that race is used in american politics to create divisions amongst the working class and it is gender and right. gender. what is the groomer thing about about uh gender G gendering yeah gender yeah. so so we see we see this pseudo working class where working class is reconceptualized as a cultural unit yeah. uh, and a sociological a habitus, as you said earlier, you know, as a way of doing things. But, you know, if you like to go to Bass Pro Store and, you know, put a moose heads up on your ha house, that's not, you know, that doesn't that's not any indication of one's class position. And you know the the objective of the socialist left is to uh you know is to build a class-based politics based on a concrete uh you know proletarian core and as you said sean then you drag the other elements of society under the, now it's not i don't I'm like i i would warn against for example you know over fetishizing you know uh you know, the, the, working class. the working class in a sense, like trade union consciousness is a form of bourgeois politics, right? Mm. It, it, it is ultimately, uh, you know, labor unions, you know, organize and negotiate for their own particular interests. And if you look at the labor movement historically, we did that show about the oil workers in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Bakken. You have like uh, segmented hierarchies within the working class of which being a union member is actually a privileged member of the working class vis-a-vis -vis the kind of casual unskilled labor uh, that doesn't have a union contract as well so within the working class itself within the quote-unquote producers the blue collars you mm -hmm. also have significant uh, divisions as well it's the same in the laptop class as we you know point at there's a like even you know i look at it with faculty in the university there's a big difference between you you technically have the same job as a quote unquote professor but there's a big difference between a being a tenured professor at harvard and being a contingent faculty at ozark's technical college right you know there's a huge your class position is different you're doing kind of a similar job but uh your like economic interests are radically different from one another and you know it is easy to for capitalists to play up amongst uh play up differences between sectoral groups within the working class the cultural difference between the laptop class and the blue collar people is perhaps easier to gravitate around right but it still it's exists within within other you know quote unquote hard hat uh, uh types of uh, but this is can i end with this question does this cultural difference that uh, becomes kind of a touchstone for these conversations, right? Um, kind of outside of this show, right? We want to break down, we want to have the Marxist discussion about class. But these discussions always come back to kind of culture politics, race politics, identity politics. Did that get louder in you guys' opinion after the second Sanders defeat in 2020. Like there was a moment where we were actually having class discussions and now I feel like we're back to the 90s and 2000s where a left politic is one about identity, you know, Pascal. It got louder because it was contrived as a way to neutralize politics that talked about the material condition of most Americans, which was economics related to capitalism. 
It was strategically done. Bingo. And 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 not to mention on top of that too, you mentioned the failure of the second Bernie campaign. Let's not forget that there was a massive insurrection uh, in 2020 as well, mm-hmm. which ultimately when the um, fire ran out and that it ended up getting subsumed and co-opted directly into this culture war uh, and directly into the Democratic Party, into the NGO complex, into this sort of um, politics, which now Brother Charles can rail against. Well, that was a <laughs> politics of failure. Honestly, all of this woke shit, all of this like social liberalism shit is a politics of failure. It comes out of the total failure of all of us two and a half years ago to make something powerful that actually could stick around and have a class element to it that wasn't just a petty bourgeois class element, which is what all this this wokeness shit is. It's one element, one part of the petty bourgeoisie or professional managerial class against another side of it, right? Both of them claiming to stand up for meritocracy, both of them uh, claiming to stand up for the right and the good and the honorable people in society, and the rest of us who want to talk about class, um, who want to point to the massive potential wildcat rail strike happening on December 9th. Um, we're all sidelined. Even Bernie Sanders is sidelined. Mm. Toussaint, do you have anything to add? Man, I would be honored to be your coworker at any time, dude. <laughs> <laughs> really Down to the job. I'll get you. Uh, we'll, we'll see how you do. Maybe I'll sponsor you. Can you swing a hammer? <laughs> uh, sure. Why not? All right, sounds good. It's like um, Lucille Ball. Peter Peter fifty four IBW forty six knows what I'm talking about as a union wireman. You would you would welcome uh, Tucson on your on your job site. I would hope too. Yeah. Uh, as a union oh, wireman, I'm the labor aristocracy that punches down on my hardworking fellow construction workers. I'm ready to punch up for a change. Oh, right on. I won't even talk shit about Sparkies, man. We'll punch up together. Sean, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Now you are coming with us to the champagne room to Yeah, let's do it, man. Big jokes. Let's do it. Let's let's have fun. <laughs> Gene, are you gonna hang out with us for a little bit? Sure. You know, uh, you know, weed was legalized in Missouri now. Hey, congrats. Uh, I wouldn't trust it. No, I don't know if I want to trust Missouri weed. Yeah. Do you chew it? Do you put it under your lip and <laughs> I haven't actually I haven't seen it. I know they had the medical already for a while, but uh, they went for the uh, the pacifying one to make sure the prawls don't come out too much. You know, so <laughs> so uh, the good old boys are going to make money from it. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for hanging out with us, Sean. Thank you so much, Sean, KP, KB. <laughs> The Antifada Podcast, wherever you're watching this show, listening to this show later, there are links in the description on how to listen to more Sean. And on that note, we are Toussaint. Workers. Damn it. (laughs) Out.